Welcome to Fountain Inc. I'm your host Nandini Krishnan. So I am speaking to Tejaswini Apte Ram, uh, award-winning author of uh, The Secret of More, um, which won the Tata Lit Live, was also shortlisted for the JCP as well as the Atta Galata Awards. So congratulations! Must feel great for your debut novel to be doing this well. Yes, it's very very satisfying. It was also shortlisted for the Tugar Prize. All right. And longlisted for the Kalinga Prize. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, you've been—you uh, have been writing fiction, of course. You've been writing short stories now for several years, and you've also worked on non-fiction. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how the jump from, let's say, short stories to such a long form, and this is also a very intense novel. So, how did the idea germinate? Would you like to talk a little bit about the secret of more? Uh, the novel is based uh, loosely based on the life and times of my great grandfather. it it sort of takes off in a very fictional direction from his real life story so the original project was to write his biography and i did all the very intensive detailed research for that including um interviewing uh, many many family members especially the older members who had uh, childhood memories of him uh, and also who could tell me a lot about the social customs and family life of that era and then i did a lot of uh, research into the textile industry and the silent film industry at the british library at the national film archive in pune and uh, the soas library in london so all that material went into writing his uh, biography um because he started off life as a migrant uh, coming to bombay from baroda and started life in a chawl and then made his fortune in the textile industry and then in uh, turned uh, into a, sil- a silent film producer and made enough money that he could invest in a sugar factory wow. so he made his fortune in in sort of the three uh, signature industries of of the state of maharashtra uh, just riding the boom for each of those industries and ended his life in a sea facing mansion so started his life in a chawl sharing a room with two other men and ended his life living pretty much like a prince so i thought this was an amazing story to take off from so i wrote his biography and then i wanted to just take take off from that into a whole and build a whole fictional world around it so that was the genesis of the novel so i think that is the secret of the secret of more being as beautifully written as it is because what i find with a lot of people who do the kind of intensive research that you do and then write a novel is that they're so keen to justify the research that they tend to put all their findings into it and what really struck me was how judicious you've been there's never a point at which something doesn't feel well researched but there's never a point at which it feels like you want to prove that you've researched it it actually as a reader i felt like you were writing things that you had personally lived through i think the uh, for writing fiction i think to make it believable and authentic uh, and also not ram facts down your readers throat um i think the circumference of your research has to be a, a little bit wider than the circumference of your actual story so you have to be far more knowledgeable about what you're writing about particularly with historical fiction more knowledgeable than what you actually put in and so what you put in seems natural and it feels authentic to the story um and it doesn't feel like you're putting facts in for the sake of it because actually you know a lot more than what you're putting in so i think that's one of the tricks to writing historical fiction is to know 
and research a lot more than what you actually intend to put in. And um, the other thing is that um, it was important for me to have written my great-grandfather's biography and gotten it out of my system. Mm. If I hadn't done that, I think I might have fallen into the trap of putting in all my research. But I'd gotten that out of the way. I'd, I'd written the real-life story, gotten it out of my system. And so I could, when I came to it in a fictional form, I could let the fiction fly on its own wings. Right, so now what you've said about your grandfather's story, your great-grandfather, I'm sorry, your great-grandfather's story, and I'm not going to give away too much of the book, but then I know, um, like I've read the book, right? So I know the similarities. And there's a part of me that's also wondering, but you've completed the biography and right now you are looking for a publisher, yes? Yeah, that's right. Because I think it, it reads almost like a business and social history of Bombay because it um, goes through the three signature industries of the state. So uh, when you, you spoke about uh, interviewing a lot of members of your family who were around at that time, who have early memories of your great-grandfather. So what were sort of like, I mean, what were, let's say, nuggets of information that surprised you? Uh, you know, things that you had. And because, one, like I said, one of the things which really struck me about the novel was how beautifully you've described what went into making a bioscope. Like, there's this wonderful part where you speak about, uh, you know, they visit the set and everything is green and they're horrified and that sort of thing. I mean, I don't know if you found it in a book, but it was so vivid to me. I could actually see it and it felt like a real life experience. So but was there anything which someone told you about the cinema of that time, which you, you know, learned, which you learned, let's say, from a primary source rather than from a book? So interestingly enough, uh, even though my great grandfather had a very prolific career as a film producer, he produced more than 100 feature films. Uh, for uh, the company was called the Hindustan Film Company. So they did all those feature films and many documentaries and shorts as well. But nobody in the family knew about this. I mean, they knew he produced silent films, but that was about it. And they knew he had contact with uh, Dada Sahib Parke, but again, that was about it. So I had no primary um, sources uh, for the silent film era of his life. So all of the stuff that you read about in the novel, which is about the silent film industry, is entirely from bookish research. Um, but what I did get from family members, which was um, invaluable, was um, for me the most interesting part of history, which is the mood and the texture of an era, which is far more interesting than the facts. So facts are relatively easily accessible. You can look it up. You can ask people. People will tell you facts. Um, but what was it really like to live in that time? That sort of authentic information can only come from personal, intimate interviews that go on over several sessions, over several hours. And that's what I did. So I had hours and hours of recordings um, where we talked about all kinds of things, uh, digressions, um, unrelated things, um, observations on even the present day, uh, what our family is like now. So these were all digressions, but I kept taking the interviews back to the past. And this sort of freewheeling style of interview is when the real nuggets of gold come out. Um, and it's not as if... So I, it, I asked myself, how come we have not talked about these things in the family before? 
And the answer was very simple. It's because nobody had ever asked. So this information was there all along, but nobody had ever asked. And I was the person who actually went and did a deep dive uh, into the daily life of a traditional Maharashtrian Brahmin family in those days. Um, and, and really what, what, what it was like to, uh, especially among the women of the family, that those were the really valuable interviews in terms of getting information about personal relationships or um, household, the, the, the environment of the household. Um, and that kind of authenticity was invaluable. And, and, and because I had all these primary sources, I could write that into my novel with complete authority because it was the truth. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the primary sources, like the family members whom you did manage to speak to? So um, let me think of some examples. Well, for, exa- uh, for example, I was um, very surprised to know that um, my great-grandmother never sat down in the presence of my great-grandfather. So uh, this was absolute news to me, um, that she never ate, they never ate together, they never went anywhere together. She didn't even serve him the food on the plate, but she would stand um, outside the room where he was eating and peep through a crack in the door to mm-hmm. see what he might need on his plate next and then direct one of the servants to go and serve him. This seemed like a very convoluted way of doing things, but that's how it was. Um, and of course, when they were much poorer, she obviously would have served him herself. When they lived in a chawl, there were no servants. Mm. Um, and so that interested me also. I wondered whether moving from a chawl to an apartment block to a big mansion with a huge staff, whether that had, how that would have impacted a relationship in terms of creating distance. Um, because you, you can't have the same kind of relationship living in two rooms together and living in 20 rooms together. Um, and so that kind of, um, that's the kind of thing I thought about when writing the novel, because obviously I, I don't know what the relationship was like in real life. There's no way to know that. Mm. But I could fill in the gaps when writing the novel. Um, also, it was news to me that she, I guess, um, when I was told it, it seemed obvious, but... I was told that women just didn't speak very freely in front of men, um, partly because they were not as educated as men. And so they didn't have the confidence to speak up in front of men. And also they were expected not to really say much. Um, This didn't mean that they were leading any kind of downtrodden life. It wasn't that at all. But that was just the convention. Um, So it's these, these kind of small details that I, I couldn't create a scene where Radha just, Radha is his wife in the novel. I couldn't create a scene where she sort of uh, is outspoken in front of him because that would have been inauthentic. Um, I couldn't create a scene where, so one of the scenes in, in the novel where, um, uh, which, which, caught, which has caught the eye of, of some readers because they pointed it out to me is when she uh, wants to have a haldi kunku and invite all the women she knows in their new apartment. And uh, Tatya says, that's a great idea. Why don't you also invite the wives of my business associates? Because we're very close. 
and she's quite taken aback. And she says, but they're not Brahmins like us. How can we have them to eat in our home? And he says, um, I mix with Brahmins all day. That's the nature of business. And you see that no harm has come to us by my doing so. Non-Brahmins all day. He mixes with non-Brahmins yes, yes, all day. Yes, yes, non-Brahmins. Sorry, I misspoke. I mix with non-Brahmins all day and no harm has come to us from my doing so. That's the nature of my business. And she gets very upset at this. She says, what do you mean? Are we now supposed to have non-Brahmins, people of other castes, come and eat in our house? And he says, I don't want to force it on you. It, it's just a suggestion, it, you know. And then she she's upset at, at the fact that he's even suggested such a thing. And she says, all right, then we'll have it on the terrace so that they don't have to enter the house. So she compromises. So from our point of view, from where we stand, it's not much of a compromise. It's pretty offensive, right? To me, it's offensive. But I had to look at this scene. I had to write the scene with restraint because I was writing about her in that period of time where she is making a compromise. And nor could I show him um, standing on a soapbox and berating her because his character is not a reformer. He's not a reformer. He's not an activist. He, he is just an ordinary man telling his wife, look, why don't you consider this other way of doing things? But I'm not forcing you. Do as you wish. And then she steps forward and compromises. I had to write this with restraint and enter that scene from the point of view of that era. Um, and, and I felt that this is probably how change happens. This is how social change happens. It doesn't often happen in one revolutionary moment. It happens through these sorts of small compromises that happen within families, within friends, couples, mothers and daughters. And, and that's how social change happens. And so um, I found it very interesting to chart that kind of incremental social change through the five decades of my novel. And I, I wanted to avoid falling into that trap where I look at a scene like that through my own modern sensibilities. And that would have created a terrible inauthenticity, which would have sort of ripped the fabric of the novel. So, you know, when you wrote this novel, um, you had already, of course, done your research into and rewritten the biography. And then you felt that you had more to say. And then you chose to write this novel can you tell me a little bit about, like, was there any point at which you thought, but okay, let me first get the biography published. What was it that made you sort of push the novel through? So uh, just writing the biography was greatly satisfying to me. Um, and I had to interrogate myself, first of all, as to why I was even writing the biography. Um, it was a very useful piece of advice, which somebody gave me right in the beginning when I was just sort of embarking on this project. Uh, he was a, a writer himself who had done a lot of archival research. And he said, and I described the project to him, and he said, that sounds like a pretty big project you're taking on. And I said, yes, it's going to be very big. And he said, ask yourself why you're doing this. Um, he said, you don't have to tell anybody why you're doing it. You don't have to justify it to anybody at all. But write it down as a note to yourself. Um, and that will help you focus because it's a very big project. So if you know why you're doing it, that will help you a lot. And I took his advice and I wrote, wrote it down, almost like a diary entry, which I've never shown anyone. It was purely for myself, as he advised. And that brought the biography into a very clear focus because I realized that 
I was writing it because I was trying to hold on to uh, a certain rootedness, which I had lost because I have lived outside India since the age of 13, mm -hmm. uh, starting with boarding school. And I've never really come back except for brief periods, a couple of times when I've worked in India. And um, certainly I, I think uh, I had, I have been feeling a sense of loss um, at not, at never being present um, at family occasions, not having that uh, sense of rootedness. Um, and so while I was writing down the reasons, this is what I realized, that this is why I'm doing it. And so the idea was not to publish it. The idea was just to do it, to find out where did I come from? Um, because I felt that if I don't know where I've come from, I don't really know myself. So it was more a journey of self-discovery. Um, all the detailed research included. And when I had figured out, and, and so I wasn't content just to know that he did this, he did this, he did this. I wanted to know the context in which he did it. And that was the only way it would make sense to me, which is why I delved into the business and social context of that period. Of that period. And when I put it all together, including my research into the social customs and daily life of the era, in a weird way, it felt as if um, a few pieces of the jigsaw had fallen into place. And I felt I knew where I came from. And that created in me a sense of rootedness. Maybe not in a place because I'm still moving around the world, but at least within myself. So that was the impetus for the biography. And so I only printed off a few copies to distribute to friends and family. And so, and, and, and that's why I never actively pursued its publication. I just wanted to get on with the novel. But now I feel I should because it's, it's, it's a good book. So it, it needs to be out there, I think. Right. And also, I mean, this is, you know, like, um, since we've been speaking for a couple of days now, and, you know, I know that you've had a very peripatetic lifestyle over the last decade or so, which is also, which has also coincided with your research in the writing of the novel. And you've also been like, you know, mother to a young child who's grown up through the process of your doing all these re this research. So this uncertainty and your need like uncertainty of where you're going to be the next month or the next three months or next six months plus conducting research plus the needs of a young child and all of that so how have you been able to balance it and what sort of routine do you follow so my husband has been incredibly supportive uh, sort of no questions asked why I'm doing what I'm doing he just let me get on with it um, when I needed to go off and do some research in India or the or in London, just, you know, go and do it. He encouraged me to do that. So that is invaluable to have this kind of a partner who will just support you and also then read first drafts and give comments and all that. He's a, he's a very good editor as well. Um, apart from that, just as I think you just need a sense of doggedness. Um, and so my writing uh, hours increased as my daughter's school hours increased. So when she was a baby, I wrote when she was sleeping, just a couple of hours early in the morning. Then I wrote maybe a couple of hours when she was in kindergarten and kept on increasing like that. And now she's in middle school. So of course I have more time. So that's it. But what was important was that my priority was her. Mm. I think if I had been ambiguous about that, the whole thing would have not worked. Um, since my priority was always that I will put my work aside uh, for any domestic reason or any reason connected to, to my child 
This was always a given. So I was never torn between the two things. The priority was my daughter and the writing was always second. And in a strange way that helped the writing because it was in its right place at the right time. But you know, the I'm just thinking of like when you have so much research and it's such a bulky project because I mean the the amount of detail that there is in every scene obviously like the, and the amount of research that must have gone into it and the span of time that it's taken for you to write the novel I would imagine that there might have been points at which um, you know all writers have bad days and sometimes they're like why am I even doing this and you know the the frustration of sometimes wanting to write something aching to write something but not having the time to put it down and then when you have the time that impetus is not perhaps as strong I don't know if you've experienced that have you not really because I have a very set hours I just write for two or three hours in the morning um, and that's it whether it's good writing bad writing I just write and then the next day if it's terrible writing, I can start again. Um, and I think, I think when there are roadblocks, um, you have to, I found that it's best not to try and see it as a wall that you're going to punch your way through. That would be frustrating. Yes, it's a wall, but you can walk around it. Just take a diversion and walk around it rather than trying to punch a hole through it. And let things take their course. That's a nice way of looking at it. So this question, I mean, it's a very, you have a very curious case of having written nonfiction based on a life and then fiction based on that nonfiction, right? So uh, which of these did you find easier and why would you say, if at all you found one easier than the other? I think nonfiction is always easier um, because it's fact-based you go to the library, you do your research, you gather everything together and you organize it systematically and then you start writing it. You can't do that with fiction because with fiction you've got to create a completely new world and populate it with people with their own idiosyncrasies, their own characteristics, their own reasons for doing what they do. Um, and then when they've really come to life, they often do things which you don't expect them to do. And it can be and, and then you've got to use your judgment about whether to let them play out what they want to do or whether you need to rein them in. And so that is much more difficult, I think, than organizing facts and filing everything in its correct place. Yeah, I find nonfiction much easier. So when I speak to you, I hear a lot of certitude about your craft. And I mean, I find that very interesting that, you know, there's so much in, in this is your debut novel. And um, so can you tell me a little bit about your journey as a writer? Like, you know, from when did you know, when did when did the stories sort of start asking to be told, perhaps? And and where do you get so much certainty about your craft and your approach to it? Hmm, That's an interesting question. I think a lot of it has to do with scheduling. This sounds very mundane. But I'm a great believer in having a timetable. And so either write to a timetable of two hours a day or write to a timetable of 1,000 words a day, you know, whichever, whatever is your goal. Then create an, a doable goal and then stick with it. And as the deadline came, I mean, a couple of deadlines came and whooshed by. But then as the final, final deadline came for submitting the draft, um, I upped the pace and said, I've got to do 2,000 words a day. 
And also by that time, the novel had sort of developed a pace of its own. So I, I could actually produce 2000 words a day. Um, yeah, I think the certitude comes from just being a believer in schedules. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we've been the word belief, I think, is what triggers this question. But we are also, you know, this is. January and we all know what happened on January 22nd which was the consecration of the Ram Mandir and we live in political times even the act of writing is political all of us have our beliefs and we do our best to you know try and I guess maintain sanity in ourselves and in the world and when something like this happens you know when you have this like the the site of um a mosque destroyed with a certain claim, this long battle fought in court, and then, you know, there's this grand celebration. What does that do to you as an artist? I think books are, and should be, our saving grace. Um, and I think historical fiction in particular, when particularly when history is so contested, I think historical fiction takes on a lot of uh, value to me, like well-written historical fiction. Because it's different from reading history in a textbook where you're looking at it from the outside in. What I love about historical fiction is that it lets you see the history as a participant. You're actually in, in the story um, because you have, you're inhabiting the point of view of one or the other of the characters. And I think the most valuable thing about not just historical fiction, but fiction in general, like well-written fiction, is that it has the power to create empathy, which is sorely missing, I think. What is not sympathy, not just to feel bad or sorry for another person, but empathy in putting yourself in another person's shoes and seeing what the world looks like from another person's point of view or from another or, or a person in another, in another era or a different context. And that's the greatest value of fiction for me is its ability to create and to teach how to be empathetic. And empathy is something that I feel is sorely missing, which often gets us into tangles in dealing with difference. Yeah, because that's something your characters go through, obviously, at a different level, this thing of, you know, um, uh, like your you your 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 struggle one struggles with a belief system which has been inherited or whatever in various ways. Whether it comes to let's say how someone who has lost her husband should be treated, rather has witnessed this in her mother, and yet when her daughter questions it, it comes as a shock. So there's this constant wrestling of logic versus belief, mm -hmm. um, with at every level, and even even her mother who uh, in one very moving scene weeps to her daughter and you know the daughter is frightened and she weeps and says you know but whatever you do die before your husband and to me that was such a strong powerful scene but she herself doesn't believe later that wrong was done by her she believes this is how the world should be and you know this constant I think there's it's a sort of underlayer uh, through all this that there's so much empathy missing and though we hark back to good old times and we say oh the world is going to hell and blah 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 it was always like that there's always been the separation of one's life from empathy for another yeah I think what's interesting about the three generations of women in the novel is how each of them builds on the hard-won freedoms of the previous generation 
So you have Radha's mother, who's Mai, who's the shaven-headed widow. She knows, obviously, she's gotten a very, very raw deal out of life. She wants better for her daughter. The way she expresses that is something very simple. She insists that her daughter reads the newspaper every day. She insists that she write a letter to her brother, who lives in the nearby town, writes a letter to him regularly. Insists that she sits with her uncle and does simple mathematics every evening. This is her way of making sure her daughter has that little bit of an edge. Um, when Radha grows up and starts living in the Chol in Bombay, she finds that it does in fact give her a bit of a social edge because the other women in the Chol, mostly who are illiterate, they come to her if they want an article read out of, they want a letter read out. So she is elevated a little bit. Doesn't seem like much to us today, but it was, it, I think it was a big deal. It would have been a big, big deal at that time. And then when Radha has her daughter, um, she wants more for her daughter as well. She is not willing to push her life, her daughter into a life where she may face early widowhood. So each, these are such small incremental changes, but each woman is building on the, the lessons learned by the previous generation and giving a little bit of a push to the woman in the next generation. Um, and of course, there are ambiguities in each of them, as you said. Each of them believes something, but finds herself doing something else. Um, and so good nature often wins out over belief systems. And this was interesting to write this trajectory over three generations of women. That's a nice thought that good nature wins out over. Yeah. Um, so what next for you? Like, what are you working on now? Um, nothing yet. I'm still trying to think what I should work on next. I'm very tempted to stay with this um, era because I so enjoyed it. I enjoyed immersing myself in that era um, and creating a kind of a, a, a wormhole in time where I could step through and lead a parallel life whenever I wanted. This is very appealing and I might stick with that era for my next story. I'm not sure yet. So thank you so much for spending the time.